Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to the Durr Show. Since the last time uh, we spoke yesterday, um, uh, Jennifer uh, Grumbly was um, convicted of all four counts of manslaughter and faces um, essentially life imprisonment. She's not going to get life imprisonment. Um, you know, she'll probably get a single digit uh, sentence. Who knows? And I think it will be reversed on appeal. It certainly should be reversed on appeal. It's a made up crime. I mean, it's never happened before. There's no legislation on the books that say that a mother who um, uh, uh, knew her son had a gun and didn't report it to the uh, uh, authorities or to the school who saw pictures, it, you know, it's a compelling moral case for responsibility. The problem is in America, we don't have what's called common law crimes. Uh, you can have common law torts. You can, that is, make it up as you go along when it comes to tort liability uh, accident liability, civil liability. When it comes to crimes, uh, in like 1815, in a case called Hudson, uh, the United States Supreme Court said you can't have um, common law crimes. The crimes have to all be statutory. They have to be set out. And so if state <clears throat> like Michigan or any other state wants to hold mothers or fathers responsible for this kind of conduct, they ought to pass a, a law saying it is a crime to buy your son a gun when your son is so-and-so and uh, and the criteria should be set out clearly and it becomes a more aggravated crime if it results in somebody being shot, etc. Legislature has the right to do that. Courts don't have the power uh, under the United States Constitution to make up crimes as they go along. In some countries, they can, uh, but in the United States, they can't. And so I think a good lawyer could win this case uh, on appeal. Um, of course, there's going to be a second case now, the father. The father now has all the advantages. I don't know why the father got tried second. He has all the advantages. He knows, of course, the case now uh, that was brought uh, against the mother, and uh, he knows that there was a conviction. He might, at this point, decide to plead, excuse me, to plead uh, and to create a plea bargain. Don't know. He might decide to subpoena the son to testify, who's now in jail for the rest of his life, um, having pled having pled guilty. Um, and so um, uh, we'll see. We'll see. The case is not over. There'll be an appeal. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain she's not getting bond pending appeal, uh, almost certainly. And so probably within a year, we'll know whether or not the conviction is going to be uh, reversed. Uh, uh, speaking of convictions and reverse, let's turn to the big news of the day, the big legal news of the day, certainly. And that is that no surprise here, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled unanimously, as we all knew they would, that uh, President Trump has no immunity for actions he took while president that were not directly within his discretionary um, authority. Um and the court say, said some foolish things in the decision. It said that the president has no role to play in the counting of votes, the counting of electors. That is such an incredibly narrow view. First of all, the president has a role to play 
every time there's an issue of whether the law should be enforced, uh, it is the job of the president to take care that the laws be faithfully applied. And so any president who sees the law being unfaithfully applied uh, can take some action to make sure that it is faithfully applied. Now, I don't agree with what President Trump did or how he saw the law or whether he was uh, actually defeated, which I think he was. But that's not the issue. The issue is what, what did he what did he think? Uh, and, and, and the other issue, which the court just got completely wrong, is um, that, uh, oh, before we get to that, there's another thing a president could do. Look, I, I was involved in the case of um, Bush versus Gore. A president can do what, what Gore did. Uh, he can concede. Uh, and if he concedes, that has a big impact on the case. Or to be more technical, if he chooses to a president or a presidential candidate who is the president at the same time, can free his electors, can say, no, uh, electors, uh, vote for whoever you want to vote. That, of course, happened when Jefferson and Burr were tied and um, uh, eventually some electors were freed, and, you know, and we've had that before in some presidential cases. So the court was just wrong legally and factually about the role of a, a president. A president does have some role to, uh, to, to play. Uh, the court was also wrong when it implied, it didn't quite say this, but it implied that the president is the only person who claims to have immunity from law. No, no, no. Uh, senators and, and members of Congress uh, are immunized. They have immunity. They they can't be prosecuted for things they didn't said on the floor of the Senate, with exceptions. I mean, obviously, but uh, in general, they have immunity. And this is the biggest surprise that the court didn't really go into. So do judges. Judges are immune. Uh, there's a infamous case some years ago where a, a judge somewhere in the Deep South uh, during the segregation period um, uh, a father uh, of a friend, a friend of his, uh, was a father of a young girl who was having sex um, with a young boy, and the father was afraid she'd get pregnant and didn't like the boy. I don't remember whether it was a racial issue or just a personal issue, but the father didn't like the boy. And in order to prevent the girl from getting pregnant, he wanted to arrange her for her to have her tubes tied to prevent her from being pregnant—a surgical procedure. So he persuaded this judge who was his friend to um, order the girl um, uh, to have an appendectomy. The father lied to the daughter. The judge lied to the daughter and said, you're going in for an appendectomy. And she went in for what she was an appendectomy and she had her tubes tied. And uh, years later, she got married to somebody who the father approved of, but he never told her this. And uh, she tried to get pregnant and she couldn't. She went to the doctor. The doctor said, of course, you can't get pregnant. Your tubes have been tied. And she went back and, and checked it out and tried to sue the judge um, for doing what was clearly not only uh, a tort, but a crime, a horrible, horrible crime, assault, uh, you know, horrible. Um, and the court, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States said there was immunity. Um, so we do have immunity. We have immunity for two branches of the government, the judicial branch and the legislative branch. So it shouldn't be surprising that we might have immunity as well 
for the um, executive branch. And by the way, this judge was acting completely ultra virus against any any conceivable proper role that he might be playing. He was just being totally lawless. But um, the court said immunity. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if the Supreme Court, if it takes the case. Now, that's the big question, uh, if it takes the case. But if it were to take the case, it wouldn't surprise me that they would split the difference. Obviously, they would reject the absurd argument that was made by Trump's lawyers when one of the judges asked Trump's lawyers, well, what if a president, while he was president, ordered the SEALs to assassinate his political rival? Of course, the answer to that question should have been immediately, that's not covered. Now let's understand why. But instead, the lawyer kind of, well, it depends if there's, if there's an impeachment first, then maybe. But if there's no impeachment, no, that, that's not the kind of answer you want to give to a court. And and so um, uh, the lawyers on that side went too far, but the lawyers on the other side went too far too. Jack Smith's lawyers basically argue that there's no immunity. Um, and, and I think if the court decides to take the case, it will split the difference and it will say that there is some immunity and it will be a case by case basis. And it will depend on how close to um, what the president's supposed to be doing um, his actions come. And, you know, the actions that uh, Trump has been charged with, remember, Trump has never been charged with insurrection or rebellion. If he had been been convicted of that, there'd be a somewhat stronger case under the 14th Amendment, but he hasn't been charged with that. Uh, and so the question is what he was charged with. Is it even close enough to his legitimate authority as president to warrant um, there being some immunity. And I, I suspect the court will split the difference there. But the big question is, will the court review the case now? Uh, as you probably know, in order to have a review, you need four justices, not five. Uh, you could have a minority of four justices who say, we want to hear this case. And you have to hear it. Ironically, if you want to have a stay, you need five justices. But generally, if you get the four for hearing the case, you'll get the fifth for having a stay. But I don't know whether the court will want to hear the case at this stage. They may want to wait until there's a conviction and then an appeal, and that will be years and years after the election. Uh, but it may take the case. And the Court of Appeals set out a very, very narrow timeline because it too seems to want to get Trump uh, on trial. Uh, as soon as possible before the election. And so it gave the um, Trump legal team until next Monday, it's, you know, six days uh, from now, uh, to appeal to the Supreme Court. If it appeals for NBank for the 11 or 12, I forget how many judges there were on the D.C. Circuit, that won't stay it. But an appeal to the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court decides to stay it, could delay uh, the hearing and delay the trial. So this has turned into, do you remember when I, when I was a kid, maybe some of you were kids, you'll remember, there was a TV show called uh, Beat the Clock, um, and it was all tick-tock, tick-tock, and you had to beat the clock. And that's what's happened in this election. It's, it's become a game of beat the clock. Um, one side, uh, obviously, Jack Smith and, and the Democrats uh, want to see these cases tried, particularly in a favorable home court 
jurisdiction like the District of Columbia, where there's almost a complete assurance that there'll be a conviction. They want to have this case tried um, before the election. Polls show that if there is a conviction, even in the District of Columbia, independent voters might be influenced to vote against Trump. Trump, obviously reading the same polls, wants to make sure that the trial occurs after the election, maybe after he's elected president and can um, call off the, the prosecution as he could be once he's in, in office. And so um, uh, the big issue is w- when the case gets tried and the scheduling will depend largely on the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court denies cert, let's assume they uh, bring the appeal next uh, Monday and the other side will get another week or so to respond, but by, say, mid 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 to end of February, um, you could get a denial of cert, a denial of review. Uh, at that point, the case goes back to the trial judge, and she can schedule a trial um, within a month. So that would bring us to late March, um, obviously, just before or during the height of the primary campaign, Super Tuesday and all that. Um, and uh, or the case could go into April or May, but or the summer during the conventions, but it would at least be before the election. On the other hand, if the Supreme Court grants cert, unless it does it on a completely expedited basis, um, normally you get you know 40 days to file your brief, even if they reduce it to 20 days to file your brief and 20 days to respond, and then an oral argument uh, that would and then a decision. That would probably take the decision well into May, um, and depending on the nature of the decision, whether it could then result in a trial um, before the election. So uh, right now, it looks like there could be a trial before the election, um, but it's also possible that uh, it may not be possible um, because of the uh, Supreme Court Uh, involvement in the case if the Supreme Court decides to get involved. And of course, if the Supreme Court decides to get involved, nobody is going to be able to predict what impact it would have on the trial itself. Of course, there's another case now pending in the Supreme Court, which has an impact on on this case. The case involving uh, whether it's an obstruction, a criminal case to go into the House of Representatives, uh, that case, the Supreme Court has already granted cert on that. And it could come down with its decision, you know, in a couple of months. That decision, too, could impact not whether there's a trial, but the nature of the trial, the nature of the judge's instruction and other rulings. So we're in a ping pong match now, and uh, it's just not clear um, what the timing is is going to be. But it's all about it's all about the timing. Obviously, again, the anti-Trump forces, the get Trump forces want a down and dirty trial and a conviction in the District of Columbia, even if it results in a reversal on appeal later on, um, whereas the uh, Trump people want to make sure that there can't be a trial uh, because they know there'll be a conviction. There can't be a trial uh, prior to the election. Right now, I'd say the get Trump people have a slight advantage. I think the scheduling is such that it's possible that there could be a trial. It would be a tight fit, but it's possible there could be a trial. But again, it's also possible that there won't be uh, a trial. 
And of course, there are other motions. Um, as you know, there have been motions to change venue out of the District of Columbia, which was over 90-something percent against Trump in the last election. Um, is that a level playing field? Um, I don't think so. But uh, the law generally doesn't require um, uh, a change of venue just because you have an unfavorable uh, potential jury uh, veneer, except if you can, you know, um, demonstrate uh, such unfairness as to rise to the level of due process violation. So we don't know. We don't know. This is a strange situation. You know, in my 60 years of practicing law, I've seen every kind of case, but I've never seen so political an environment, so political an atmosphere where uh, everything is, you know, who who's benefiting and who's who's losing. Um, everything seems to be a zero-sum political game. Both sides have weaponized the legal and constitutional system. As we're speaking today, there's a vote taking about to take place about the impeachment of Secretary Mayorka. It's absurd. He didn't commit treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. As one of the congressmen who was impeaching him said, he committed maladministration. We'll go back and read the history of the Constitutional Convention. One of the framers actually used the term maladministration and said we should put that as the criteria for impeachment. And uh, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, said, no, that would turn us into a, a British uh, parliamentary system. So no, no maladministration. It has to be treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And I just don't think the Democrats, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think the Republicans have made the case that the Democratic um, secretary has committed an impeachable offense. But uh, as Hamilton said, he said, the greatest danger is if impeachment turns not on the guilt or innocence of the person impeached, but on who has the most votes. And right now they're counting votes. Um, as I went on the air today, it looked like if they could hold on to two or three of their votes, the Republicans could win and get an impeachment then it would go to the Senate, where, of course, he would be acquitted. But still, he'd be the first secretary impeached in 100-and-something years. So um, um, it's all politics. And that is what Alexander Hamilton said was the greatest danger of misuse of the impeachment clause. And we're seeing it. We saw it with Bill Clinton. We saw it with um, Donald Trump twice. And now we're seeing it with Mayorkas, and uh, whichever way it, it, it comes out, it's establishing a precedent now, especially if there is an impeachment. And you can be sure the Democrats, who are as unprincipled, many of them, as many Republicans are, will just hypocritically vote uh, to impeach the next uh, Republican who they don't like, who think they think is guilty of maladministration, even if he hasn't committed uh, treason, high crimes. Or misdemeanors. So we live in an age of hypocrisy. We live in an age of double standards. We live in an age where principle is subordinate to partisanship. And we live in an age where everybody's out for themselves. Um, everybody is trying to uh, benefit their own uh, partisan uh, political views rather than the best interests of the people of the United States who they are elected to try to represent. So we'll watch the Mayorkas case as it unfolds. Uh, we'll watch the developments in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, we should know soon um, whether, uh, and I, I know the answer to this, whether the Trump people will appeal to the Supreme Court. Of course they will. They'll seek certiorari. And we'll learn before long whether the Supreme Court will uh, involve themselves in the case. Because anything the Supreme Court does or doesn't do could have a determinative outcome in this election. And that shouldn't be the way it works. Courts should not be playing a role in who gets elected president, whether it be the Colorado court trying to take Trump off the ballot or the Maine Secretary of State or the D.C. Circuit. Um, uh, these cases should be decided by voters based on the economy, based on foreign policy, based on immigration, based on all the issues that are important to the average American voter. They shouldn't be, we shouldn't be waiting to hear how the Supreme Court or other courts decide cases in order to be able to predict who the president will be. But that's the world we live in today. And we have to wait to see what the courts will do. That began, of course, with Bush versus Gore. Um, the United States Supreme Court essentially decided who the president would be. I am convinced to this day, as you know, I wrote a book about it called Supreme Injustice. I am convinced that um, more people in Florida intended to vote for Gore than for Bush, but there were butterfly ballots and there were closure of voting um, centers and there were all kinds of uh, problems with the hanging chads. And in the end, a five to four decision along partisan lines by the United States Supreme Court handed the presidency over to uh, Bush. Um, would it have gone to Gore? If the Supreme Court hadn't interfered and were, if there had been a complete recount, people differ in their conclusions based on that. But uh, one conclusion is clear. That is the court played a major and immediate role in deciding who should be the president. And it's not what the framers of our constitution intended. They intended the courts to be the least dangerous branch, the least influential branch, and the branch that is only responsive to cases and controversy when there's no other alternative resolutions. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, this time around, I think the Supreme Court will be playing a very important role in who our next president is, and that's too bad. All right, let's look at some letters. <laughs> Start with a funny one. Um, this is about, um, this is about uh, uh, Forney Willis and Nathan Wade. Wade got paid. Fanny got laid, the taxpayers got played. Alan, how's that for a legal opinion? Well, it's certainly concise and, and to the point and um, a lot easier to comprehend and read than the 58 pages that the Supreme Court rendered uh, uh, today. Okay, now we go to um, a case in, in Michigan, the, the mother. What if the kid's parents had bought him a car? He drove it to school and ran over students in the high school parking lot on purpose. Are the parents responsible because they bought him a car? Just wondering. Another letter said, what if they bought him a pit bull uh, or another kind of dog and the dog wasn't well trained and, and killed a child? There are, there are cases like that. There are actually cases involving uh, uh, pit bulls and, and other dangerous dogs. But whatever you do, there should be statutes. This is a legislative determination, not something that the courts should be making up as they go along. 
this is an interesting one. I don't want to associate myself with what's in it. I just think it's worth repeating because it's um, it's something to think about, although I don't associate myself with the implicit assumptions underlying it. Here's what he says. Um, if you start holding mothers responsible for the crimes of their children, there's going to be a lot of black mothers in jail. Well, just think about that. Again, I'm not endorsing that view. Uh, there are a lot of young black kids who are in gangs, uh, who are involved in shootings. And um, are their parents going to be held responsible? Again, if you're going to do it, pass a statute, have hearings, find out the facts and create criteria. Don't just say manslaughter, manslaughter. Manslaughter can mean almost anything. So again, I don't endorse the implicit assumptions behind this um, message, but I think it's certainly worth thinking about. Okay. Changing the subject. So if you think that Iran is using Hamas as a surrogate, then why aren't you calling for Israel to attack Iran? Why should the United States be the one to go to war with Iran when we have an ally with nuclear weapons who gets billions in aid each year from our government who is perfectly capable of doing that? Of course, that would mean that IDF would take casualties instead of American service personnel. But shouldn't Israel be happy to make the sacrifice for us? And the answer is yes. And, and I think Israel should be the one to do it if they can do it. And Israel has asked the United States simply to provide them with bunker-busting bombs so they could bomb areas where they know that the nuclear facilities are buried deep underground. Some of them are buried deep into mountains. But, um, yeah, I think Israel is the primary target of an Iran nuclear reactor. Ideally, it could be the Israeli Air Force that does it with the logistical support of the United States, uh, not putting uh, American uh, troops in harm's way. Israel has boasted over and over again that it has never asked for American aid that would involve American soldiers, American troops, and no American soldier, as far as I know, has ever uh, has ever been put in harm's way by defending Israel. The 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 help that the United States gives Israel tends to be logistical um, uh, intelligence and and providing ammunition and means and tools, but it's the Israeli soldiers, the IDF, that puts their soldiers' lives on the line. So I, I, I agree with the thrust of your, of your question. Irrespective of any disagreement I have with Professor Dershowitz, I feel privileged to be the beneficiary of his prodigious skills as a teacher without me having had to apply to, been accepted to any school, much less having to attend and pay for classes and submit homework and get grades. I actually taught a class today uh, as a guest uh, at, at Harvard Law School. A, a very interesting class on, on democracy and law. And the professor asked me to come and talk about the Colorado case and give my views. And I started by saying, look, for 50 years, I've asked students hard questions. Now I'm here to be asked hard questions by students. And the students asked me hard and brilliant questions. And it was a very interesting exchange of views. And uh, I felt good being back uh, as a teacher for at least uh, an hour and a half. And so that worked, that worked well. Um, as a retired cop, I saw some of the worst parenting for over 30 years, but we never prosecuted anyone. Should this woman be prosecuted for providing her son the weapon he used to murder others? 
While I can't imagine a more irresponsible act, putting her into the system will accomplish exactly why. And and that you know it's 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 a good it's a good question. Um, uh, again, if you want to pass a statute, you can pass a statute saying if a child is under a certain age. And remember, this child was tried as an adult and sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole. So you know they can't really have it both ways. Either he is a responsible adult or he's not a responsible adult. If the parents are responsible, does that diminish the responsibility of the child? Well, the courts in this case have said have said no. And um, so here are a couple of more questions relating to that very issue. Since when do we charge people with the crimes of others? Well, we often do that, like conspiracy laws, um, but uh, usually it involves an agreement of some kind. Um, yes, charged for not properly storing the gun, but not for what someone else did with it. He was not, this was not, was that not a founding principle? will not be charged with crimes of the father. Well, it you know, comes from the Bible, obviously. Um, uh, fathers will not be charged for the crimes of their sons. Sons will not be uh, held responsible for the crimes of their fathers. Each person will be held responsible for their own, for their own acts. But, uh, you know, the Bible also has some pretty harsh approaches to how you deal with a child. Um, the stubborn child um, can be stoned to death. Uh, it's never happened, according to the rabbis in the Talmud. Um, it was a prescription, but it was not not followed in practice. But, you know, at least that's what it called for. Um, all right. And uh, by tomorrow, we'll have more news and uh, more interesting developments. And then tomorrow, I'll be on my way to the University of Miami and uh, uh, be ready to be greeted by protesters if they're uh, or any, or hopefully by hard questions. That's what I say. And I've told the students, they can ask me any questions they want about anything, including the false accusations against me or anything else they want to ask me for. But at least don't try to stop other people from listening to me. That's the core of freedom of speech. So see you tomorrow. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.